Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Again, it's the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this 8th of July, 2021. What does the Bible say about immortality? Um, Who among us is actually going to live forever? First verse that came to mind when I asked myself that question, what does the Bible say about immortality? First verse that came to mind was Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life, that is immortality. Is it immortality of the body? Is it immortality of the soul? What does immortality look like as the free gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord? Um, And what does death look like? What's the difference between life and death? Can we extend the one and avoid the other forever? These are the questions being asked in our day by the transhumanist community. So I thought to myself, all right, what other verses do I know? What other passages of Scripture speak to the question of immortality? 2 Timothy chapter 1, you can read the whole chapter in its entirety. I'm going to just read here from verses 8 to 10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. This is Paul talking to Timothy here. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So immortality comes to light through the gospel. Immortality becomes possible because of Jesus, who did what? Abolished death. Jesus is then uh, a part of, a huge part of the answer to the question uh, about immortality and how it is achieved. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Immortality. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is is an entire chapter worthy of your consideration on the topic of what does the Bible say about immortality? What makes that which is perishable imperishable? What makes that which is mortal, the body, put on immortality? Uh, In verse 54, well, verse 53, Paul says, again, this is 1 Corinthians 15, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying, "Death death has swallowed up Death is, excuse me, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is how we get from mortal flesh to immortality. Why am I harping on this this morning? Well, because there's an 11-year-old boy uh, who lives in Belgium 
who has graduated from university with a physics degree. He's 11, by the way. I intend to harp on this for a moment with Peter Kapsner um, and ask uh, how long it took him to get through college. So there you go. This is where this is headed this morning. There's an 11-year-old who has completed a college degree in physics. He's beginning his master's program in the fall, and he is committed to one goal. That one goal, making humans immortal. We're going to talk about Laurent Simons, age 11, from Austin, Belgium, in just a moment. Peter Kapsner joins me next. Peter Kapsner joins me now to answer the big question. Um, Peter, how long did it take you to earn your first university degree? Oh, you have to ask me that question this morning, Carmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Good morning. I, you know, good morning, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, no, I, so I managed to cram my uh, my fi- my four year degree into five years. So it, it did take me that extra year to get that LED degree, but uh, but it actually gets worse uh, than that, Carmen, because I did. Three days before I was ready to start the school season in September in a fifth grade classroom, mercifully for those students, I decided to bow out of my elementary education teaching career. I thought teaching is amazing and I love the kids, but they wouldn't learn anything from me. So then I crammed my four year Master of Divinity degree into five years as well. And then to top (laughs) off the story, um, I had a three year program at the University of Edinburgh to finish my Ph.D., got laughed out of the room with my first 350-page draft of my dissertation after all of this painstaking research. And so I managed to finish my uh, degree in about seven years when it could have taken me three, thanks to an incredible advisor I had over there that said, you know, you American students write very differently than we do here in Britain. And I'm going to have to teach you how to write in British English, not American English. And so, yeah, I I think I took what should have been 11 years and, and turned it into 17. It was great. Okay, so a couple of things there. Um, Laurent Simons is 11. Um, He would be in fifth grade, um, potentially subject to a teacher like you. Like this whole this whole conversation, I didn't even know how many touch points this conversation was going to have. Instead, he has um, graduated with a physics degree. It took uh, the physics degree that normally takes three years, took him only one year to complete. He would have completed it when he was nine, but they told him that they would not grant him um, uh, the certificate before his 10th birthday. And so he dropped out when he was nine and came back to complete it um, when he was 11. Uh, And he's now embarking on a master's degree. So I thought that it would be interesting to note here this boy's goal. His goal is to uh, make human beings immortal. Mm. He's mapped out a path. Uh, Here you go. Speaking to a Dutch newspaper, De Telegraph, uh, he said, I don't really care if I'm the youngest. It's all about getting knowledge for me. Uh, This is just the first piece of my goal of replacing body parts with mechanical parts. Immortality, that's my goal. I want to be able to replace as many body parts as possible with mechanical parts I think it's like the $6 million man, right? Remember that guy, Steve Austin? Yeah, right. Absolutely. I've mapped, I've mapped sure. out a path to get there, and you can see it as a big puzzle, quantum physics, the study of the small particles. This is just the first piece of the puzzle, which is why I got a degree in physics. Two things are important in such study, acquiring knowledge and then applying that knowledge. 
Uh, mm. So anyway, he um, there you go. I was reminded in reading this um, in terms of the desire to acquire knowledge. I was reminded of what Solomon asked um, from God in First Kings three, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Knowledge is so different than wisdom, right? Wisdom is the ability right. to discern those things consistent with the kingdom and knowledge just as knowledge. It, it doesn't have to have anything to do with the kingdom. And that that's a, I mean, clearly, first of all, he's, if human beings use maybe 10% of their brain, I think I'm at about 7% and he's clearly using about 17%, right? In terms of his, <laughs> Way his more degree than path. Way more than me. But, but what's really interesting about that is that sort of the, the two new frontiers for humans trying to realize themselves, I suppose would be a way to say it would be the space ex- uh, exploration as well as the frontiers of immortality. And I, there's this thing about this, Carmen, that we I think we miss it. Immortality is such a big part of the of the puzzle of our faith. And you read these beautiful passages of scripture at the top of this hour. But immortality within the context of a God-driven, reconciled world is what we're asking for. And all of this drive towards immortality is still within the fabric of a, of a brokenness, of a chaos, of a, of, a, of a present darkness in which rules and reigns. And so if we're going to have the immortality conversation as an 11-year-old physics person, um, absent of a reconciled universe, because it, you know God is going to reconcile all things at the end of the day, then there's really no point to having it. You're going to persist in this broken place forever and ever and ever. And that's why we need to combine reconciliation with immortality. And now we have the gospel. Amen. Amen. So I think that it is worth uh, our time today to spend uh, time in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, uh, seeing what God has to say about wisdom, not just knowledge, and what God has to say about immortality and how it is achieved through his gracious gift in Jesus Christ in order that we might be better prepared to enter into conversations of the day about transhumanism, conversations of the day um, about extraordinary individuals in the world like Laurent Simons. And then let's begin praying that this young boy has an intersection at some point with a compelling, winsome Christian um, who introduces him to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter Kapsner and I will be right back. should write a book about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Um, I don't know, Peter. Are I love you... that idea. Yeah, I, well, and it is interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, I, A, I can't write a book. I'd be a terrible writer. My, <laughs> this my is son... what I was going to just say. I was trying to not, I was trying to say, this is an excellent writing assignment, but it is, it is so being <laughs> given to the wrong no you you now my son on the other hand who's 21 years old is a terribly gifted writer and we keep threatening to do something together where he's sort of the ghostwriter but but i once sat down okay, that's um, a good idea that's a good is, idea right? like get like, somebody to write down, with you yeah i was in the heart of, of the of the literary capital of the world in edinburgh and i would sit in these coffee shops where incredibly <laughs> famous authors i mean if you're ever going to be inspired to write this is where you write and i would sit down and i'd start drawing something out and i thought I got nothing. I, I don't even know how to craft a chapter. 
in a book. And so if, if I can uh, work with him, then I think it'd be a great conversation because knowledge can just puff up, right? But wisdom almost always brings humility with it because you discern the beauty of God's kingdom through the power of the spirit. That's what provides wisdom in our lives. And in that discernment, you begin to have your breath taken away about the things that are just so good, right, and beautiful, and also those things that are dark and wrong and disturbing. And you can begin to see the difference between the two. You don't have to have any degrees to have wisdom. Knowledge is a very different thing. Mm-hmm. Here, here. Okay, let's um, let's talk about American men and the friendship recession. Yeah, that was an interesting article that you sent me, Carmen. I think it it, it struck a nerve, and it and it took me into a lot of different directions in terms of what just observations that we probably all have and our listeners have too. That there there's a lot of men that end up in a pretty significant journey of loneliness, especially the further they go on in life, and and so the stats show that increasingly so men articulate that they don't have even a single close friend or even maybe one or two at most. And and the importance of that, I, I don't I, I wonder if we don't understand the importance of it yet. I know I'm just starting to get my head around the importance of, of friendships like that. I know uh, I've had the the really good fortune of having met a, a person who became my, my best guy friend in life some 25 years ago. It was in a situation that I was dreading, right? My, my wife, Hallie, was on staff at a church, and she was working alongside another woman. They became good friends, and they did the obligatory, hey, we should get our husbands together, to which both he and me, independent of each other, just rolled our eyes and thought, oh, great, this is going to be terrible. And, uh, and yet we hit it off from moment one. And in the context of shared activities, shared ministry, playing golf together, bowling, being with his five kids, me with, <clears throat> he with my five kids. Um, he's in pulpits at times. He's a tennis coach. There's just so many different things that we've shared then over the course of these 25 years. And we've looked at each other often and said, um, we really only need one really good friend to, to be able to do life with on this level. There's not many days that go by where we're not at least texting each other, even if it's just foolish things. But But while we're on the golf course, we can talk about incredibly important things, uh, all at the same sort of blended in together. And and I don't think that we have many models within the church, uh, within media, for example. We were just watching Little Women as a family this last week, and just interesting the models of the female relationships there. By contrast, we don't have healthy male model relationships, and a lot of kids are growing up without dads uh, now, and so they also don't have models of healthy male relationships of what it can look like. And I think it's led to this epidemic of loneliness, um, guys need some other guys to be able to share the burdens that they are uniquely experiencing as men in life, whether it's in relationships or in vocation or their sense of purpose and all of that. And, and if you can just get a couple good friends, you don't even necessarily have to be part of this gigantic community, although that helps and in some ways. But I, I think we would see men start feeling a confidence to come back to the table in some ways um, that we really need as a society, that we need in our families, that we need in our churches, um, just to be, again, part of the conversation. I, I'm not talking about a male-led society, not anything along those lines. A, a shared leadership, I think, is so important. But I think that men have been relegated to the side and been sort of stuck in their living rooms or, or in their um, studies or in their basements or whatever, and they just haven't been part of the conversation. And friends would do a lot to draw men back out, I think. So we have a listener who says, um, hey, on this friendship topic, this recession for men, um, please share the importance of people reaching out 
There's lots of times uh, she's talking here about her husband. There's lots of times um, that my husband has been invited to something. He would have never volunteered. He would have never initiated. But because he was invited, he went and that gave him an opportunity to meet other people. Um, And so I do think that's really important. Um, Part of this research is that it's really this is really, really bad. Um, for single men. So uh, in this listener's case, right, she she is yep. actively encouraging him to engage. She's probably also, um, you know, helping that process. I mean, that's exactly what you just described in terms of finding, you know, your your bestie, um, you know, that your your wife and his wife were a part of making that happen. Um, single men are we definitely need to be reaching out and being sure we're inviting them to things. My husband is really good at this and I encourage him to do things with guys, right? So if he's going hunting, I don't want him to go hunting alone. I want him to go, you know, I want him to invite some guys, like take other people hunting. You're really good at it. We have all the stuff. Go do it together. Same with fishing or camping or like whatever. And and so I do think that for uh, for women who are listening who are married, we need to be creating some space, giving the liberty you know, packing the lunch, whatever, whatever is required to sort of grease the skids to make this happen for the men in our lives. Uh, if they're our husbands or our sons or our nephews, whatever, or our dads, let's see yep. if we can't help make some of this happen instead of the, oh, you know, it's it's hunting season. So I'm, you know, what, what, what do they call them? Hunting widows? Like, don't use that language. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Right. Like that's, right. Right. you know, so it needs to be, there needs to be a way that we are encouraging men to do men only things so that they can cultivate relationships with one another. Yeah, and just quickly on that, I'm so glad you mentioned that about Jim and hunting and and uh, inviting people along because research does indicate that men do much better when they are together in a shared activity. Uh, to to just invite a guy over when they don't know each other and then sit them down on two sofas across from each other and expect them to engage deeply in this friendship, it can work, but it's not usually the way that guys tend to operate. Some some men will. But research as a general pattern shows that even boys do much better in a shared activity as they get to know each other. Um, Somehow that activity bonds them together in different ways than conversation will. But the conversation begins to naturally emerge as they're in the activity as well together. So men are great conversationalists, but they also tend to need something that they are sharing in that. So the, the hunting example is a great example, a simple way to just invite somebody. Uh, it's, it becomes non-threatening to have an activity that you're sharing. Okay. And then for all of my anti-gun people listening right now, um, Jim is primarily a bow hunter. So there you go. Yeah, that is so He's cool. Also... I, honestly, Carmen, it, I can't hunt. I can't write. But if I could hunt, <laughs> I would absolutely want to be a bow hunter. That would be the way to go. Like Legolas <laughs> in Lord of the Rings. If I could be an, you know, if I could grow by six inches, get blonde hair with a really cool sort of Scandinavian face and work with a bow. Oh, that would be my life dream. Oh, there you go. I, it's it can it can be realized. You can live your dream. Yeah, you and Jim would actually be great friends. Uh, you know, we're God I love to that. provide for someday when we live closer together. There you go. <laughs> I, or, or maybe you know. in the heavens to come, right? In the immortality. I just uh, you know, at some point it's going to happen. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> oh, all right. So Peter Kapsner, I don't know. We we've run out of time, and we, didn't we have we have other topics we can cover, but we are genuinely out of time. <laughs> Maybe somebody will um, not show up, and we can we can talk again. All right. Hey, thank you as always for joining me. It is a delight, a refresh me, a refreshing delight.
Oh, I love it. These are just such fun Thursday mornings with you all there. Uh, Thanks for doing what you do and just shining the light that you do, too. Hey, go get started on the uh, Wisdom Not Knowledge book with your kid. And within 15 minutes, it'll be done. Mm -hmm. All right. See you. All right. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye. All right. That's Dr. Peter Kapsner, who we love, who we love. Hey, there is a Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. Peter should go or come. I mean, because I'm going to be there. So I think I can invite him to come. But he should go. Uh, You can check it out. NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. Hey, we uh, we got to take a brief break, then we'll be right back. So every day during uh, mornings with Carmen, you hear John Stone Street uh, and Breakpoint. You also hear the point. And so we want to check in with our friends at the Colson Center from time to time. Today, Michael Craven joins us. He's the director of the Colson Fellows Program at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Um, He's also an author. Uh, His 2009 book, which is called Uncompromised Faith, is just really excellent. Um, Overcoming Our Culturalized Christianity. Um, It's an excellent book. Michael's been talking about the issues that confront us as Christians in the culture a lot longer than uh, some have even been thinking about it. Uh, We have talked with him in the past. He joined us back in February to talk about the missional strategy that he employed in South Dallas uh, in the development of Bridge Builders, which is an inner city ministry, uh, transforming the culture of poverty into a culture of flourishing breaking the cycle of poverty that dominates America's inner city communities today. Today, he's going to join us on some worldview headlines. Michael Craven joins me next. This is Max Licato. What will happen if your job disappears or your health diminishes or the economy takes a nosedive? Does God have a message for his people when calamity strikes? He certainly had a word for Isaiah. The prophet wrote, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God calmed the fears of Isaiah, not by removing the problem, but by revealing his divine power and presence. Rejoice that God is able to do what you cannot do. Your anxiety decreases as your understanding of your heavenly Father increases. This is Max Lucado. Now I'm a- Joining me now, Michael Craven. He serves as the uh, the national director for the Colson Fellows Program at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He is the author of an excellent book that I um, would love to recommend to you, but you might have a hard time finding it um, online. And so I'm going to ask Michael about that as well, Uncompromised Faith. Michael, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, great to be with you. Good morning. Good morning. Can people still get the book? And if so, where? Uh, I, I think it's still available on uh, through used bookstores on Amazon. It was published in 2009, but uh, I do hear tales it, that it is available. 
All right. It is really, really good. So Uncompromised Faith, Overcoming Our Culturalized Christianity. Um, it's a really excellent book. All right, Michael, you have joined us before um, to talk about your experience with Bridge Builders, um, and we want to invite people to go back and listen to that conversation. Again, it's posted at MyFaithRadio.com. It aired on February the 9th of this year. Today, let's talk about some um, worldview headlines. Baronel Stutzman is a name that will be familiar uh, to people who have been following issues uh, across the country in terms of religious liberty and religious freedom. For people who don't know who she is, who is Baronel Stutzman, and why are we talking about her today? Well, she is a very sweet, very kind lady in Richland, Washington, who uh, owns a florist, a flower shop. And in 2014, one of her customers, who happened to also be a friend, someone she had been in a relationship and known for years, thought they were close, felt like they were close, came in and uh, asked her if she would be willing to provide the floral design for him and his partner's upcoming same-sex wedding. And and to her credit, she just very gently explained that due to her Christian convictions, Christian beliefs, uh, she just could not participate in such a way that she felt like she was endorsing that union. He understood. They He parted, thanked her. Well, within a couple of hours, um, his partner posted just a somewhat innocuous um, post online, and the state of Washington saw this and filed charges against her for violating the anti-discrimination law uh, that followed the uh, the Obergell phase uh, decision that uh, legalized same-sex marriage. And so in 2015, they brought her before the court, uh, ruled against her, fined her $1,000, told her that uh, she could no longer accept wedding business unless she agreed also to conduct or provide services for gay weddings. And this, of course, set off a series of long court battles that are still underway to this day. She appealed to the Washington State Supreme Court. Uh, they ruled unanimously against her. Um, and later appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, most recently, the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to take her case. And um, they were very hopeful that uh, the Supreme Court would take her case following the decision uh, with regard to Jack Phillips in Colorado, who most people are familiar with, the cake baker, similar circumstance, and the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled against the state of Colorado, arguing that they had acted with animus against Mr. Phillips. And uh, that, uh, in effect, vacated the Washington state decision against Baronel Stutzman, and which required the Washington state Supreme Court to reexamine the case, see if there was the same conditions of animus present there. They spent about three minutes looking at it, said, no, nope, we did it right the first time, and uh, so she has effectively lost. But what the U.S. Supreme Court does, that decision does, and not taking up the case, is it leaves all Americans in this sort of no-man's land with regard to religious liberty. What, what are you going to enforce? What are you not going to enforce? And uh, right now, this dear lady faces complete and total financial ruin. And um, it illustrates so perfectly what so many people were warning about years ago when we were battling over whether or not we should legalize same-sex marriage. And, of course, the 
response that we always got from the LGBT community uh, was, what does my gay marriage have to do with you? Well, now that we see that it has everything to do with us because there is no longer any sort of live and let live policy that was never the intention to begin with, and what we see in Baronell's case is there is a desire to completely and utterly ruin this woman. So I think at the um, at the basic level for everybody to understand what we're talking about, um, Michael, would it be fair to say um, that in in failing to review uh, Baronel Stutzman's case out of the state of Washington, the Supreme Court has basically said every state can compel citizens um, to use their personal or private business. It can compel them to the kind of speech that we're talking about here in terms of creative arts, because Baronell's creative art is flower arranging. And right. the the use of her creative expression, her speech through her creative arts is now being compelled by the state of Washington. And the U.S. Supreme Court has has said by failing to take the case, that's OK. A state can compel this kind of speech uh, when it has these kinds of anti-discrimination laws in place. That's right. That's right. And this is uh, it, it signals the uh, what I what I fear is the beginning of a dangerous trend um, and one that I think Christians today need to begin to think about and ask themselves, what will I do when they come for me? Um, because we are going to be increasingly faced with that situation. I can give you a, a minor example I experienced the other day. My, my youngest daughter recently graduated from college. She's looking for a job. We live in uh, Dallas, Texas, and um, Plano specifically, and there's lots of corporate headquarters there. And she's applying for a job online with a very large corporation that everybody would know about. And she is presented with a series of questions, one of which, do you identify as LGBTQ? No. Well, the next question is new, and it says, are you an ally of the LGBTQ community? Yes or no? Mm. <laughs> and I thought, excuse me? Uh, so we're, we're being confronted with this question. It's being pushed in your face, and you are going to be compelled to take a stand. Where do you stand? Are you for us or are you against us? And, and this is a challenge to everyone who claims the name of Christ, uh, because we cannot subordinate our submission to Christ's lordship and yet live by lies. And we're going to be yeah, faced with might, this question. That's going to remind listeners of the conversation we had recently with Rod Dreher about his book, Live Not By Lies. Uh, right. Good for you guys to be checking out. Also, um, I just think a good reminder um, in everything that we're talking about today for people to understand the state of play. Um, Carl Truman's book, which I know you guys at the Colson Center have featured as well, um, mm -hmm. I just think is excellent in terms of helping people understand where we are in terms of postmodernism. Yeah, yeah, yeah we 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 are witnessing a a a massive cultural shift in, in epistemology, how we understand truth, what is truth. We're witnessing a massive shift in, in our culture's worldview about what it means to be human. 
what what is the nature of personhood? What is the location of personhood? Is it is it as it has been historically understood in the West as rooted in being made in the image of God? That this is what gives people intrinsic value uh, to to artificial or superficial things, external things such as one's sexual orientation or one's skin color, skin pigmentation. Uh, well, these are not the locus of one's personhood, for goodness sakes. And yet, this is what we see happening in our culture. And, and this presents us with enormous challenges and, and, and an enormous array of options. Um, we live in a culture where you can be anything that you conceive of being because you have conceived it. So there's no standard for def- – and uh, that this is the unraveling of Western civilization and nothing All right, I am. I am talking with Michael Craven. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. He is the National Director of the Colson Fellows Program at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Michael Craven from the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Michael, let's um, let's talk a little bit about a, a conversation that's going on across the country, this battle between parents and school boards and, frankly, parents and teachers unions over CRT, critical race theory, for people who aren't familiar with the story, what's going on, and what do you think it signals? Yeah, again, this uh, kind of goes back to our, our previous conversation, a, an attempt to redefine the nature of what it means to be human um, and the location of what constitutes personhood. Here, uh, what constitutes personhood is your class, and it's either you're in the oppressor class or you're in an oppressed class. Uh, so again, external circumstances defining your personhood, the nature of being human. Um, and this is not a new phenomenon. It's what's happening is it's being discovered, and as it's being discovered, uh, critical race theory, critical theory. Uh, a lot of people may not really understand what that is. Um, I, I like to call it by its real name, and it's cultural Marxism, um, just applied in a in a variety of contexts. And if you understand the history of critical theory. Uh, it, it was conceived by a group of German Marxists who recognized, rightly so, in the 1930s that um, Marx's dream of worldwide worker revolution, because working conditions would become so untenable that they would rise up against their oppressors, and you would see this worldwide revolution and communism would sweep the world, and a new world order would come into play. Well, they saw quite to the contrary that uh, what was happening was workers were making more money and thus building better lives for themselves and growing quite content. So they conceived that we needed a new strategy, and so they shifted from economic Marxism to cultural Marxism. They just relocated the the oppressor-oppressed class from economic uh, oppression to you name it, racial, sexual, uh, economic, um, whatever it might be, and that's what critical theory is. And uh, it has come on the scene uh, in full force here in the last five, ten years, as uh, presented as a tool to accomplish racial reconciliation. 
Um, and most people are familiar with some of its tenets, such as white privilege and uh, um, whiteness, uh, that being white, um, you are inherently an oppressor. You just don't know it. And part of the problem is your ignorance, and thus we've got to help you understand how racist you really are. And really all it does is it just continues to perpetuate uh, the, the schemes of the adversary who, who seeks to divide humanity along any line he can possibly conceive of. In contrast to the view of history to which Jesus is leading, in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all these artificial distinctions are nullified in Christ, and we are one. There is one race, the human race. And so parents are recognizing that, wait a minute, you're indoctrinating my children with this ideology that is not beneficial, in fact, destructive, and uh, we're, we're not going to stand for it, which is pretty exciting to see. Um, but we need to do more than simply protest critical theory. We need to make solid arguments against it, exposing it for the fallacious idea that it actually is. So let's um let's spend a moment equipping people to do that. So um when I encounter someone who um is is parroting uh critical race theory points, um how do I where do I begin to say that that is not true? That that is that does not point us to the truth. Yeah. Well, I think Jesus offers us some good insight. He was a he was a great a great questioner, right? He asked a lot of questions. Uh, and I think rather than immediately move toward an attempt to rebut, I think we need to begin by asking a lot of questions, such as, please give me an example of systemic racism that you are talking about. And this is where people will go, well, a lot of you know, hemming and hawing and not really being able to articulate an answer. Um, and, and then you can press that question further. So, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, your own experience with racism. How is it that you think you are um, acting as a racist because you were born with your particular skin color being white? Um, and, and, and this is where it all begins to break down because there, there's, there's really no answers for this. Uh, to argue that America is is still embroiled in um, and perpetuating systemic racism, it, it's just nonsensical. Um, is there racism in America? Are certain individuals guilty of racist ideas, practices? Of course, and they will be till Christ returns. Uh, but to suggest that there is a systemic structure in place that is set up uh, intentionally preserved, promoted, reinforced uh, is just a nonsensical argument. We don't live in those days anymore. In fact, America can be quite proud of the fact that it has confronted its, uh, its ugly past, the horrors of racism, and it has decisively dealt with them um, and, and, in effect, destroyed all of those systematic structures that were historically in place. And that's a testimony to the uh, to the strength of this nation. It's its ability for self-criticism, self-analysis, self-reflection, and change. All right. For those of you who are listening right now, and you want to do a little of your own research related to this, um, you might want to be looking at what the American Federation of Teachers uh, are doing at their conference. You might want to look at what the national. Um, 
It's that's the NEA. So that's the National Educators Association, NEA. I always get it, you know, flipped around with the NAE, of which I am a part, which is the National Association of Evangelicals that's not doing this. So <laughs> yeah, don't confuse those two. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So um, so let's be paying attention to what's happening on this front. And let's be uh, not only equipping ourselves, but encouraging one another to reframe the conversations of the day through asking the kinds of questions that Michael Craven has equipped us to ask for more equipping on this and tons of other stuff. Uh, check out what they're doing at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Michael serves there as the director of the Colson Fellows Program. Michael Craven, thank you uh, for joining us again today on Mornings with Carmen. You really enjoyed it. Carmen, my pleasure. Always. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, friends, we will be right back. As always, thank you so much for joining me today. I love the time that we spend together. Uh, I'm, there's a couple of headlines that I'm watching today that I hope to tee up for conversations tomorrow. Uh, if any of you uh, know anything about SermonGate, I'd love to hear from you. You can always email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. If you don't know the big controversy uh, out there right now, um, just ask yourself the question, am I comfortable if my pastor preaches other pastors' sermons. Like, how do I feel about that? All right, Sermongate. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.